my dad was complaining about Eddie Muller recently. <laughs> oh, what did yeah. he say? He's like, you know, <laughs> that Muller, he's been picking some real stinkers lately. All <laughs> them out. I was like, Dad, the guy's been doing that for probably 20 years, you know? How many times can you show Touch of Evil or whatever, you know? He's got, he goes deep in the well. Yeah, he's got to pick some, some, some deep cuts at this point. Yeah. You know, you can't hit every time in Noir Alley, you know? <laughs> Definitely. No. Definitely. <laughs> but I like making fun of Eddie Miller, too. Like, it's just a funny thing to do because yeah. he's just like the poor, like, marketing setup around the guy where he's got to, you know, sw- but he's also he likes hard it. Yeah, yeah, but he's like, sw- you know, swirling his whiskey. Welcome to Noir Alley. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're just a dork, yeah. okay, dude? Just like everyone else. Like, Wardrobe. you're not tough. The movies are tough. Yeah. You know? Wardrobe department has to find him the widest tie possible, you know, the shortest and widest tie possible. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, the truth is, guys, starting to get on my That's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Well, hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and with me, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Ryan Saunders. Uh, and for those who don't know, the, the Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic and the other two hosts are tasked with bringing films to to uh, to discuss in relation to that topic and we we have it out we run the gauntlet together and this week it was my turn to pick I was up again. And I told this story last week at the end of the podcast, but I suppose I should just refresh everyone as to why I, you know, chose the topic of of the week. But I had been reading a a news story on the BBC, uh, standing outside waiting for my class to begin, having some coffee and just looking at the news. And I read a news story about the killing of a magnificent and very rare white deer in the UK. There was this white deer, a stag, which is extremely rare, and somehow it had gotten loose on the streets of Merseyside. And the police and the local authorities sort of struggled for about an hour to try and figure out a way to bring this animal in, to get it off the streets, and finally just sort of gave up and shot it dead on the streets of Merseyside, killing this very incredibly beautiful and rare animal and I was sort of like bummed about it and just looked at the thing and thought man nature is so marvelous the creatures on this earth so my topic this week was meant to honor this this fallen animal this this wonderful beast so my topic was all creatures great and small and I tasked the boys with bringing films that feature magnificent creatures, wonderful animals, impressive beasts, and boy, uh, (laughs) did you bring it. Two uh, (laughs) very splendid films featuring animals, and uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun picking these two films apart today, so 
we might as well just jump into it. Marsh, why don't you tell us what film you brought? Sure thing. When I first was thinking about what to pick, I was thinking about the animal movies in my life. And I think like a lot of people like me, born in the 1980s, you might have spent your childhood watching Homeward Bound, the uh, classic Dwayne Dunham children's film with talking animals that go on an adventure. And I was thinking about that. I watched that movie quite a bit as a kid. And I discovered, of course, eventually that there was an original film. It was actually a remake and I had never seen it and so I thought this would be a a fun time I guess to watch The Incredible Journey from 1963 directed by the Canadian filmmaker Fletcher Markle. The Incredible Journey is a Walt Disney Productions film distributed of course by Buena Vista And it is the story of three animals that go on an incredible journey. And they are Bodger, the bull terrier, Teo, the Siamese cat, and Luath, the Labrador retriever. And these three pals, friends, comrades, they set out to head back to their home through the woods and all the treacherous things that... uh, are in the Canadian wilderness. <laughs> in the Can- yes, in the Canadian yeah. wilderness, uh, where it was shot uh, and set in Ontario. And yeah, that's that's really it on the surface. You know, these animals they go on an incredible journey. The title really says it all. They sure do. It was a tremendously <laughs> incredible journey. Ryan. What about you? What did you bring to the table, Ryan? Well, I took to heart your prompt about finding a creature that I found to be magnificent and beautiful. (laughs) And I was inspired by the poster for the film I selected because I don't think I have ever seen anything as magnificent and beautiful as the image on this poster. And that is for the film MVP2 from 2001. And that stands for Most vertical primate it's worth pointing out the distinction because it is a sequel to a film called most valuable primate so technically there isn't a most vertical primate one however we are on most vertical primate two uh by the time we arrive at this film this is a film directed by another canadian filmmaker robert vince who has sort of developed a career of making movies like this. You may, he uh, is uh, affiliated with Air Bud Productions, which uh, I think sort of speaks for itself. It is a riff on the Air Bud films. He did not make the original Air Bud. However, he has been like vamping the success of that film uh, for his entire career. He's been making a bunch of films about animals uh, he's been in like the Space Buddies movies, um, some of the Air Bud spinoffs, some monkey movies, uh, you name it. Robert Vince has done it. So Most Vertical Primate is following up on the story of our hero Jack, who is a presumably um, a storied and seasoned veteran of the hockey arena because when the film starts it's sort of supposed that you have seen the first one I have not I did not bother to look up what happens in the first one and instead wanted to just take all the information at face value as it was um, given to me throughout 
So a new hockey team is being started called the Seattle Simeons, and they think that what a fun way of getting people into the arena to check them out and then to have Jack on the team. And he sort of spends the first chunk of the film, you know, heading back to Seattle, performing some great stunts on the rink, you know, really showing off. But things take a turn. When their team is so successful and Jack is such a good player, an opposing team decides to scheme by making it appear that Jack has bitten him in a clash below the uh, in the in the goalie, um, the net, <laughs> the net, yeah, where they fake uh, a horrible bite on his hand and they like cover it with ketchup, uh, which very yeah, successfully fools the the refs and all the medical personnel involved, and so Jack is sort of disparaged and seemingly suspended, and things are looking really grim. So he sort of heads out on his own to wander the. S- the back alleys of Seattle, glum and just really down on his luck. Simultaneously, there's a young boy named Ben who can be spotted around the city of Seattle riding on a skateboard, putting up flyers um, and just to make a couple extra bit of change. But we find out that his mother has passed away, and he's sort of on his own, afraid of getting back into foster care. So he's held up in a shack. Yeah, he's like sleeping in the lifeguard hut. <gasps> Right. But confusingly, the skate there's a skate shop that's back door opens into what appears to be yes a public an abandoned public swimming pool. So is it connected to the skate shop? I I never figured that out. But they are next to each other, so it is confusing. Yes. So I guess to quickly wrap this up, then since I, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of rich details in this film, so. Ben is uh, holding up in this like lifeguard shack at the at the um, the abandoned pool, and he encounters Jack. The two of them strike up a friendship. They start skateboarding around town together, and that's sort of you know the, what the rest of the film is. It's like a little buddy a comedy between the two of them. Ben aspires to participate in this big skateboarding championship. However, he is struggling to make ends meet on his own as just a young eight year old boy skating around the the streets of Seattle and at the same time everyone's looking for Jack because he you know they they, they want their lovable chimp back and that uh, so yeah that's that's most vertical primate 2 from 2001 <laughs> well you know again on the surface people might think that these films don't share a whole lot in common Aside from featuring, you know, magnificent creatures, uh, special beasts. But, you know, it occurred to me that there actually is quite a bit in common. And one of the biggest things between these two films, and that I think other films featuring animals uh, often has, uh, is, is a sort of exploration of animals suffering due to the treachery or negligence of humans, whether it be their owners or just simply uh, sort of hostile homo sapiens roaming Mm -hmm. around. And I think that both films sort of explore this, each in their own way. But not just the treachery or negligence, also the good in humans. And really, it, it occurs to me that I think a lot of animal films are often meant for us to reflect upon that, you know? This concept of human all too human, perhaps. What do we share in common with these creatures? How are we like them, and how are they like us? How are we worse than them, and how are they 
at times, better than us. It's very natural then for that goodness to appear through children often in these types of films and why so often that they are children's films. You know, it's obvious that children love animals and that's also just a market and one of the reasons that these films are made. However, it is very easily from a story and thematic standpoint to have, you know, the goodness in humans come from the children, spectators in the films because they haven't been corrupted by the, you know, the ills of society as many of the adults have. You know, like an incredible journey, I think one of the few adults who is is truly good is is just a hermit because he is on his own sort of, you know, connected with nature. Um, Although, well, yeah, let's <laughs> let's be honest about uh, our old hermit friend. He has a bit of a mental issue, probably dementia, and he really does the animals no favor because instead of uh, feeding them like he should have, he pretended they were having a normal human dinner party. Uh-huh. And then ended up eating all their food. And then he ate. All, that is such a bizarre scene. Yeah. And we can just we have to start here because this in this scene, this guy sets the table for four for him and the three animals. And then because the animals don't eat their food like a human, he just goes around the table sitting down and eating all the food. Yeah. Getting more and more full and gassy with each bowl he slurped down. Yeah, he's like struggling to finish some of those meals. By the time he gets to the third one, he's kind of like seemingly physically in pain. Yeah, It is a moment in the film that feels like a fable almost. Like he's a character that is like completely outside of the like reasonable world that's developed throughout with all of the adult and just human characters in general. He doesn't feel like uh, the source of reality. So I guess I guess what I was implying was he there was a bit of good nature to him. Oh yeah. Um, however perplexing and bizarre uh, his execution was. And if you remember the narration of the film, yes, like calls him a philosopher, and he is very he is benign despite his yeah absent mindedness or whatever's going on in his head. But he's introduced humming. My Darling Clementine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the score cue quickly turns into uh, My Darling Clementine. So he's good. Oh, good day to you. And if I'm not mistaken, he's sort of walking around through the wilderness with a crow on top Mm -hmm. of his head, sort of perched on his little beaten fedora that he's wearing. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But yeah, I mean, to my, again, initial sort of thoughts on the two films, even if the man isn't, you know, uh, outwardly hostile to these animals, as some people are in the film, in both films, I should say, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, his failure is ultimately that he doesn't try in his own way to get on the animal's level. He expects the animals to be on his level, you know? And as you point out, Marsh, when they couldn't understand what he meant, you know, when they heard sit down as good, good boys and girls, they all sat down, they plopped down. That's what they do. They sit down, they followed orders, you know, Hey, this man's going to feed us. He said, sit, but his failure to understand, to try to reach out and see, Oh, they're sitting. They are sitting. They're doing what I asked them to do. He just assumes they're not hungry. Well, why aren't they climbing up here onto these seats? Well, Good animals don't sit down at the dinner table and eat, right? They sit down and wait for the food to be brought to them patiently. So, well, he does. He also, there's also like a lack of understanding for their social situation because he has no way of knowing that these are like posh 
animals living like a you know an upper middle class country lifestyle in like the countryside of Canada you know so he doesn't know that they have like respectable manners yeah we should probably though uh get the animals on this journey though yeah. right uh, yeah. again like how how these domesticated animals could wind up in a hut with a hermit out in the middle of the Canadian wilderness. It's <laughs> a great question. Well, it all starts with uh, John Longridge, who is their temporary owner out in the woods in the Canadian wilderness. And John has taken the three animals in because their family has gone to Oxford, England, because the father is a professor and he's invited over there to do a semester or something. Thing. And so John takes in his friend's dogs. And he's very close with this family, I should point out. So it seemed like a natural fit. And so as the movie opens, we're introduced to John and the animals and their temperaments and relationships, you know. The whole film, we should add, is narrated by Rex Allen, who is a sort of like cowboy actor. So it has a, a sort of Western t- folksy twang to mm-hmm. to it. And, and this is the key difference between this film and Homeward Bound, where you have like Michael J. Fox playing one of the animals, voicing one of the animals. Don Amici, I think, yeah. is the uh, That's the right. one. And Sally Field, too, right? Yeah. That's what a cast. Yeah. But in, in this film, no. Uh, the animals do not talk the film is narrated pretty much throughout and and consistently uh, and it gives it a kind of like yeah combination ethnographic film combination children's animated film you know because it is very like look at this nature you know that kind of yeah. like voiceover right throughout and so it was the animals set out for home they couldn't know it was 200 miles away only knew it was somewhere off to the west, so they would follow the sun. The incredible journey had begun. Also there to just hold your hand as you're like making your way through it. I when I was watching, I kept thinking, uh, I was like, I'd love to make a radical like Soderbergh style cut of this film that removes the voiceover narration, because then huge chunks of the film would just be purely observant, and it probably would be like a pretty remarkable alternate version of the film and i think you would get like a lot of the same stuff because ultimately his you know his narration is kind of banal it's just sort of like and the cat is you know is happy-go-lucky and mischievous and the old dog is tired and you know it's just a sort of like again laying it out for the children right but yeah Mm -hmm. you could do the yeah the the documentary cut i mean the animals in spite of like you know uh, the the decision for like the second one to sort of give them actual voices like in this film I found were incredibly expressive uh, oh, yeah. incredibly expressive creatures and I think anybody who has pets you know it's a very human thing that you know we look at at our pets and we look at animals and we we sort of project upon them kind of human personalities and an understanding of them uh, on a very yeah like kind of human emotional level but I mean fuck me if if animals aren't <laughs> telling right. you what they think right and mm-hmm. in this film these three i thought were were very strong actors i guess if you could if you put it in those terms like each one of them did have a, a personality that emerged as the film went on and 
his to your point right i mean yeah the the narrative and marsh i think you're saying the same thing was was almost superfluous at times because we could see as it went how each of them moved the the pecking order and how one would sort of watch out for another you know which of them was the sort of provider you know the cat being the the hunter the the uh the the is the labrador being the the sort of like scout and leader of the pack and bodger kind of being the the emotional center of the three the, the sort of you know the heart of the group yeah i completely agree i feel like the not to say that the narr narration is like reductive but i do actually think oddly enough that this is a disney film that tells us everything we need to know with the images and i think that everything he says is already almost always self-evident on screen um, i also just want to say that i think that one of these successes that both of these films have in common is exactly what you just said of how expressive the faces are with the animals on screen to the point where they are characterized simply through how good of performers they are. Oh, yeah. um, so much so that even, and we'll get into this at MVP, in the one scene where our hero Jack was swapped out for a monkey double, I found it to be screamingly obvious because they had become so intimate with his his expression and his grizzled face, you know. Yeah, but those those dumb dumb hockey players were fooled pretty easy. I'll tell you what, <laughs> they, they, they were, they jocks. were. <laughs> yeah, well, this also brings up an interesting point just about films with real animals in general that I was thinking about. Especially, I watched MVP two first, and I was really thinking about. You know what I should do in my editing class? I shouldn't teach them the Kuleshov effect, you know, showing the classic clips I use. I should show them Most Vertical Primate because that's how it works, right? Like this sympathy for the animal, this emotion and this projection for the animal is all through the editing, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, it's as great a demonstration of Kuleshov as any, you know, just this... An animal can just be looking, and the editing gives it life, gives it meaning, gives it feeling. And of course, the animals, you know, especially in like Incredible Journey, in both of these, all both of these films, these are top tier animal performers. Oh, you know, yeah. this is like these are the best animal performers around yeah. for these films, uh, and you can see that as well. So, I mean, I don't want to discredit their performance, but so much is in the editing. Oh yeah. Right? I mean, there were moments where I could sort of look at, at you know, particularly an MVP, too, <laughs> where he's got this kind of blank look on his, you know, yeah. simian face. And he's just kind of looking off in the distance. And I'm just picturing <laughs> behind the camera, you know, somebody waving like a, a tennis ball on a stick around or, right. you know, a banana or whatever yeah, you would have. to a just, bowl of soup, you know? <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, like, or you know, just kind of be like paying attention to whatever the hell is going on over there. And then, yeah, in the editing room, you know, then the next shot is, yeah, someone's like dying mother or something. And it's like, <laughs> poor thing, he's so heartbroken, you know? But they're just like waving a cheeseburger around over there. <laughs> That's movie magic, baby. The Soviets figured it out. It is a good point, though. I think that the, there is so much success with the editing in both films in order to just convince us of like all of our empathy for these animals and how they're feeling and what they're looking at. But I think one of the key differences between both of them um, and something that could lead us into a, like a deeper discussion into The Incredible Journey is that with MVP, right, it's very arranged. Um, it's all like very clear cut, but 
in terms of just the photography in general. But then in Incredible Journey, the camera is weirdly adaptive and has kind of a documentary quality. Um, it's so rare, I feel like, for especially a Disney production to see, to just feel like you could feel the cameraman alive reacting to what's happening in front of his eyes. And so much of Incredible Journey is a camera just reacting to the different things the animals are doing in these seemingly controlled environments. Look, it's, you know, anyone that knows me knows that I, I consider, like, Disney to be just, like, an utterly evil entity and extremely manipulative. But this does come from the more, I would say, like, sort of golden age of Disney when, you know, they they were incredibly uh, diverse in terms of their output of, of mm-hmm. the types of films that they were making. You know, everything from sort of, like, documentaries and docudramas to, you know, of course, the more well-known animated, you know, children's fair. But, you know, they also made films for young adults. I mean, they made war films. They made anti-war films. And this comes from a period where I think there was just a lot of, a lot of more interesting things from Disney. You know, it was a more, I would say, you know, to, in, in the terms that you even put it, you know, a more open kind of relationship before you know mm-hmm. the the memo came down in the 90s that every, yeah that every goddamn disney movie had to follow the same structure and be plotted the exact same way you know and have the same sort of emotional beats but there were some you know i i think and this film is a product of that there was a time when disney uh put out i i would argue just much more interesting films this being mm-hmm one of them. Yeah, I think it's like worth pointing out this film is yeah, it's a secret Canadian film. You know, maybe not even a secret, but it it's a Canadian affair thoroughly. It was a novel written in 1961 by Sheila Burnford, who was a Canadian novelist, directed by a guy who'd done animal documentaries for Disney. Mm. Um, and it really seems like, yeah, they were just like, oh, okay, yeah, go up to Ontario, shoot your thing with the animals. Like, we'll give you the three best animal handlers in the world and see what you can do. And to your point, Ryan, it is, yeah, not to just overuse like documentary, but it is kind of this reactive, raw camera camera work that did surprise me as opposed to a much more controlled classically shot and cut kind of thing that you would maybe expect from modern Disney or whatever. So yeah, it it is an odd sort of film in in that way. Well, it's not Disney sort of just trying to, to bend uh, the, the current trendy milieu of choice, whatever it is for them at that particular time to, to their Mm -hmm. will, you know, to their iron Disney will Uh, it's, it is more of like, let's, let's explore a milieu. Let's put some interesting animals into the world into a, a particular place in the world and let's film that because it's as much as it as it is i mean we were kind of joking as much as this is a, a film about three animals on an incredible journey i mean it's also just like god damn canada is beautiful yeah. and they mm-hmm. cover a a wide stretch of canada and give you a, a sense of how how you know for lack of a better term how like diverse the canadian landscape can be you know everywhere from these sort of like lush forests in fall the the multitude of colors that the film opens with to eventually even like you know a a river freezing over as the snow begins to fall i was actually a bit curious though about the journey and the like actual space between it because so when they 
do, I mean, maybe we need to establish again, like them leaving the house and beginning the journey. But when they leave, their goal, their end goal is to arrive back at their original home. Yes? Yes. So I'm confused about, um, and maybe this is just something I missed in terms of the friendship between the guy who's taking care of them and this family. I just assumed they were neighbors. They're clearly not because no. they're like 200 miles away. Canada's a big place. <laughs> Canada's a big place. Yeah, maybe 200 miles. You could call that a neighbor. Yeah, they just yeah, they live, you know, probably a couple hour drive away or something like yeah. that, you know. But over a mountain range, too. Yes. And I think part of it, and it's, you know, more implied than it's explored, but uh, even Long Ridge, you know, is also, it seems, uh, an academic. So that they're these sort of like well-to-do academics who retreat from, you know, Oxford or Toronto or wherever, you know, college they might be teaching at for a moment to just their their country kind of homes, you know, their their cabins out there in the wilderness for them to just mm. be one with nature. So I think there's also that kind of element at play because there's also like a distinction between like I feel like the way that they talk and the way that they communicate. Yeah, there there is and especially there's a difference even in like the accents of the various people that the animals encounter, right? They encounter, like, a Finnish family, some random people with extremely thick, like, Canadian accents, you know, mm. spread throughout the film. Uh, Longridge has, like, a sort of Scottish lilt to his, his voice, you know? There's a certain, you know, uh, a brogue that he has. Absolutely. And so, yeah, again, to uh, pick up where I left off, uh, at the <laughs> beginning, it's, yeah, the opening of duck season, and Longridge is going hunting, and he's leaving the animals alone to be cared for, you know, by uh, this woman whose name escapes me, and he's left a note for her that the uh, night prior, the Siamese cat knocks off the mantle place and into the fire, so there's going to be a a miscommunication about where the animals are. I mean, in fairness, he really blew it by by putting that note onto two pieces of paper. He should have found a bigger piece of paper because the note, you know, he writes basically like, I'm it, it the first page ends with something like, I'll be taking the animals with me. Right. Gets the second piece of paper out for a walk <laughs> before <Yeah>. I leave. <laughs> and it's the second piece of paper which the cat, Teo, knocks off of the mantle into the fire. So the note simply ends with, I'll be taking the animals with me, no period, right? Yeah, it's definitely his fault, I think. Oh, for sure. It's definitely not the cat's fault who is no. the, the greatest character in the film. But we'll get to that. And so the next morning, yeah, they, they watch their their temporary owner drive off. And as they're all sitting there very picturesquely watching him leave, the Labrador retriever looks up and sees birds migrating. And he gets it in his head that he, too, wants to go home. And so being the sort of youngest and, and spryest and uh, the one with the plan, he just sort of takes off. And as the narration points out, they, the three of them are quite close and they never go anywhere without each other. And so there you are, you know, 15 minutes into the movie, the incredible journey begins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the pack is on the move. And that's when the film first starts to really resemble like planet earth for cats 
when the Siamese cat sort of becomes like the focus, you know, I mean, the other, the, the other two dogs, of course, too, but you get to see the cat fishing and like catch a fish out of the pond in that really remarkable close up. You get a lot of like lovely shots of just the cat carving its own path, still following along, but going at its own pace, enjoying walking up on the fence and like kind of weaving his way through this and that, you know, yeah. but it leads to their first real encounter when as they're moving forward bodger the bull terrier his bones are starting to fail him he's 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 a little bit older actually the the bull terrier was like it was a woman dog but bodger is a male character right i we were confused about that because the nips on that dog like that was a lady (laughs) yeah they kept calling him a he though right that's what i was confused about i mean there was no mistaking that the siamese cat was a man because the size of the balls on that cat were just like unbelievable. <laughs> I was confused. Though. I'm not going to lie. I did look at the bull terrier and I was, you know, there was a shot where it was walking away from behind and that undercarriage did not look very male to me, you know, no, no. either. Of course, I'm no vet, uh, but. <laughs> yeah, but so anyways, Bodger's bones are not holding up so well and kind of needs to constantly like rest his paws in the water to cool him down. Uh, but eventually he sort of kind of clunks out, you know, he just like kind of has to sit down and hang back. And it's in this sequence when two bear cubs arrive out of the tree and start wrestling a bit and having fun with the bull terrier. And that, what a crazy pair. I don't know. I, I've never seen like a dog just like kind of hanging out with little like bear cubs mm-hmm. before. Do you think they like put honey like on the back of his ears or something to get them? Because it looked like they were looking for something <laughs> sweet. They were like licking yeah. the dog trying to like eat something it felt like to me. It, it was though even for me immediately a hair raising moment because as soon mm-hmm. as I saw the baby bears my first thought was oh lord the mother better not be around because I love bears. I really do as animals. Like the one thing you know is that generally a bear might not be that dangerous unless you get between the cubs and the mother, in which case there's going to be trouble. And so my instincts, of course, were immediately, uh, (laughs) I think, in the right, because then the mother does show up and the the good-natured wrestling of the cubs yeah it's a false flag yeah quickly turns into a more precarious situation yeah and then and it's incredible i mean i spoke briefly about the size of that cat's testicles but then it it, the cat clearly does show that it has balls of steel because the cat goes head to head with the goddamn bear that's right and it's a really shocking series of shots and i actually kind of found it really stunning but also really distressing because that cat is clearly a distress Yeah. <laughs> 
the whole film uh, has a lot of questionable. I mean, we'll get into some of some of that stuff. But that cat is like deeply upset for huge chunks of the film. Oh yeah. I mean, have you considered that it's acting though? <laughs> because yeah. I found an article written by the author of the source material. She visited the set and wrote a piece in a magazine about her experience. Oh. And she talks about specifically about the cat handler. Al Niamella, and she says, uh, she first describes him saying, uh, I shall never be able to think of Al without automatically adding his ever-present props, a Siamese cat draped like a stole over his shoulder, purring like a tea kettle, the strange leather and canvas belt of his own devising with five or six compartments containing ground meat, sardines, tuna fish, or some other delicacy peculiar to his feline star's mood of the moment. And the tinkly <laughs> bell, which was his own Pavlovian signal to his actors. And she continues, she talks about Sin, the Siamese cat, who was, of course, this handler's pride and joy. And she wrote, Every inch of his eager little body was supercharged and vibrant, and he could learn to do almost anything from unlatching doors to jumping down to a protruding girder on a 300-foot trestle bridge. He had been persuaded, I should say, rather than taught, by the natural exploitation of his reflex actions, by the repetition of a sequence, always ending in the reward of food and a demonstration of Al's affection. Amazing. So I think it was, like, highly controlled, like, to a certain extent, you know. You know, when you put it like that, uh, it truly sounds to be a very magnificent animal indeed. I mean, holy cow, that thing. I, I, mean, I never had any doubt of the magnificence of the cat because the cat clearly is a remarkable performer. There were just like literally shots where the cat was th- th- next to a bear, a real yeah, bear. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how much you can train a cat to just not be terrified at the sight of a bear, but you never know. Those yeah, would could. be proud. Oh. Know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, bears, from what I know, on the flip side, are are some of the more easily trained animals uh, throughout, mm-hmm. you know, cinema history. Um, I didn't necessarily feel that, you know, the cat was in danger. But but I do I do feel you, though. That, I mean, his ears are pinned back. And so if that is purely this guy just training this cat, I mean, then, yes, it is an amazing performance to know that, you know, I have to be hostile with this other creature and they do dance and they go back and forth. And, you know, the dogs are really not much help in the situation at all. It's really Teo just standing between Bodger and this, this, you know, mama bear that's full of, uh, full of piss and vinegar over like the, 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 the wrestling her cubs had done with Bodger the dog. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I should qualify. I didn't think the cat was in danger in that sequence because the bear clearly was like very like in control and like trained because yeah i mean a black bear you can get a black bear to do almost anything uh they're just like little puppies but that fear in the cat's eyes was a bit convincing it's shortly after that too that they're then shot at yeah Uh, the next sequence they mm -hmm. go to this like abandoned lumber mill kind of setup and the bull terrier goes for the cookhouse goes for the goes for the scraps uh and we Mm -hmm. are met with the first but not the last, just sort of blank-faced, 
white person who just pops out of nowhere with a shotgun. Sometimes this is bad, sometimes this is good. It's a very interesting thing, but there's all these people in plaid, there's all these like white guys in plaid who are just like coming out <laughs> from behind doors or bushes with a shotgun ready to just shoot anything. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of an interesting dynamic. And so this is the first time and they get, yeah, they get shot at uh, explicitly and it's very harrowing like immediately. And I loved the the bit of narration which followed that moment where it's it was talking about Bodger and his sort of reaction to that and it said being shot at really shook his faith in human nature and again you know I was like this is this you know what you see in certain animal films in this one and I think you see it a little bit also in MVP again this idea that that humans aren't necessarily always, I mean, obviously, <laughs> you know, uh, benevolent, you know, that, that human nature is far more violent, far more irascible, perhaps, than, than even animals, you know? Mm -hmm. From the perspective of the bear, she thought her cubs were potentially in danger. She's merely protecting her, her young, as a good mother could. But this guy... This is, uh, you know, jacked up lumberjack or whatever. He's blasting at a dog to protect a garbage can, yeah. you know, right. like to, 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 to ward off these animals who are simply scavenging. Here's a bunch of trash and this guy's willing to, to, to murder an animal over it, <laughs> right. you know? Yeah. Oh, poor Bodger. And then, yeah, it, uh, they meet the old, the hermit. And then they keep, you know, they keep going on. They're going home. They're getting hungry. Uh, and we should say, too, of course, it's not, you know, like this whole film, of course, I think maybe in that kind of Disney to the, the dark Disney mindset. This is very much uh, the war of all against all out there. Right. Because mm -hmm. we've got hostile humans. We've got hostile animals and hungry animals in the case of our trio who devour a bird at one point in a very like startling kind of you know, yeah. just very straightforward way. Like, yeah. Yeah, I caught a bird, just chomp down on it. Mm -hmm. rip, um, it rip it to shreds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it definitely has a, a, a kind of dark depiction of nature. You know, nature's not, like, harmonious. Yeah, it was those moments where, you know, the film sort of drifted into almost, like, Mondo Kane territory for me because, like, there's the whole sequence where Luoth is, is chasing down the rabbit. Yeah. And again, I'm like... That dog's gonna snap that rabbit's neck. Like that, I I didn't imagine that the dog yeah. was gonna stop. Like I really felt we were watching again, like a nature documentary. Like Richard Attenborough's gonna be, you know, explaining to us like how this rabbit really fucked up, you know, and that this thing was just gonna wrench its neck and. Obviously, they don't show that moment. And that scene, too, has, like, triumphant music. It's, like, shot and kind of edited as this, like, very playful dance. And, the yeah, the result, of course, is, yeah, the, the facts of life, you know? Mm -hmm. The dog just snapped this thing's neck. You know, why didn't the bunny get a voiceover narration, you know? Is it not too one of God's creatures? Wow. <laughs> yeah, you know? As uh, as Nick Nolte in the Thin Red Line said, Staros, nature is cruel, right? That's I mean, right. And, and I mean, to an extent, that's sort of what we see play out here. You know, it's majestic, but it's unforgiving. 
And it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. In this film, we see nature of, of several different kinds, whether it's, you know, the, the, the weather or the, the climate or, you know, their, their latitude in Canada or humans <laughs> and their, their selfishness and their inability to, to share, right? Nature is, is and can be certainly very cruel, and, you know, again, like, I think, it, as you were saying, like, dark Disney, like, you know, I, I think of so many, like, these Disney films today that I see where it's kind of a similar idea, but it's like animals going on missions, right? And and it's often, like, I, I just remark on it when I see, like, trailers for, like, they kind of almost put, like, this animal experience into military terms like we've got to do this and we've got a special mission we have to go on when in in this case like if there is a mission the mission is purely survival it's purely movement across an unforgiving and very cruel like landscape certainly beautiful and certainly full of wonders and surprises you know it isn't all just doom and gloom and terror and dread there's there's tender moments there really are these these special moments but but in that it's it's highly unpredictable right you don't know mm. what lurks around each corner and especially as they come to uh, a river which is like the first really 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 big dramatic event that occurs you know like 45 minutes into the movie the dogs cross the river no problem but the cat is not having it and so the cat sort of makes its way over like a beaver dam uh, and it has to make a leap yeah. over the roaring rapids and a little waterfall and that's when yeah shit gets real because it does not go well and uh, I remember the cat going over the waterfall in Homeward Bound, and it's also here in this movie, a smaller waterfall, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> but then it's, a, yeah, it's this horrible sequence where, yeah, the cat is being swept away by the rapids, and so is Luath, who goes after Teo in the water. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very intense sequence. Oh, yeah, I was amazed. Uh, two weeks ago, you know, when we were talking about the great stunt work in George Romero's Night Riders, this river sequence to me, you know, rivaled some of the the peril we saw there. Of I'm honestly, like me going, how the hell are they pulling this off? Because I was on the edge of my seat watching this cat and this dog like struggle at times down mm -hmm. these rapids, you know. And again, from what you've told us about this trainer, like. Clearly, there was, like, work that had been done to, like, plan these sequences and pull them off in a way that isn't going to kill this dude's beloved special cat. But, like, right. I mean, I really was, like... Cats in water is just not normal, you know? It's, no. like, horrible. Like, you know, just seeing that that thing in that much water. I mean, it, there is something so fucking... Like, th this is, like, kind of my overall takeaway about both of these movies. There's, like, there's so, something so fucking real about animals, real animals on screen. Uh, yeah. That's just beyond anything, narrative or whatever. It's just, like, so fucking real. And, like, mm -hmm. then when it's dramatized, uh, yeah, it hits pretty hard. Yeah, because they don't have, uh, you know, Oscar fever in their eyes. They're not gonna, <laughs> you know, they, they don't have an ulterior motive. Right. For them, whatever that, whatever that they're experiencing, and even if it's through training, like, 
they're they're in it. They're so present in a way that like even the 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 greatest method actor can only dream of being there, you know? I think there's a chance that Jack from MVP had Oscar fever on his mind. <laughs> he he is a he's a chimp that really seeks glory. <laughs> True, true. Yeah. I mean, really though, maybe we could debate that because I feel like he was <laughs> he was in it for the for the buzz, for the juice, you know. I think it was his younger brother that really had the had the glory in his eyes. You know? No, that's true. Yeah, especially when the younger brother stands in for Jack in that one sequence, he's clearly straining for for that Oscar gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So after the river, you know, it's this uh, another sort of, yeah, like dark moment as the cat is is survives and is rescued by a Finnish family, a young girl who sort of adopts the cat and nurse nurses it back to health. And that's a really great bit, Andy. I hope you appreciated that the the Finnish man immediately insists that with the milk his wife is getting for the cat, he also get brandy oh yeah uh, and they are feeding that cat brandy straight up uh, I did love that, yeah. uh-huh. molly and i were imagining that cat just being like i haven't had brandy for years yeah just the taste of the sweet brown you know <laughs> i will say it did vivify that cat or revivify that cat oh yes from the state that he was in showing up you know washing ashore looking like a drowned cat uh, to to then get a little milk and brandy, you know. Yeah, well, and also the Finnish dad sings a song uh, for the cat in that scene, which a truly hallucinatory moment in a in again a film that could be described as kind of ethnographic or like documentary in the old school sense of the word. All of a sudden, it's like an MGM musical for like a minute and a half as he tucks his daughter in bed with Teo, the Siamese cat. It felt like an odd moment in a dark fairy tale all of a sudden. And so, of course, the dogs are out looking for the cat as the cat is being nursed back to health and uh, eventually leaves the house in a bittersweet moment as it sort of says goodbye to the little girl and immediately finds itself run afoul of a lynx described by the narrator as a wild and wanton killer. Oh, yeah. And that is another really like intense sequence of this gigantic lynx chasing the Siamese around. Yeah, that lynx was very terrifying. I mean, they are they are spooky uh, creatures to me. Just like they, a lot of them have those two sort of it looks like 
just like a long mustache that kind of hangs down or like extended fangs, you know, their, their, their beard that they have. Like, and I just picture it like yeah. soaked in red blood of their, their fresh kill. And when that link showed up, like my goodness gracious, I thought, you know, <laughs> out of the frying pan into the fire because it was yet another like harrowing obstacle for this cat to overcome. Which it does by uh, hiding in a log, using its intelligence, uh, after also like yeah, having a, a sort of showdown on the top of a tree, like on a tree branch, uh, yeah. as they're sort of like facing off and hissing at each other. God, yeah, just cats hissing at each other, super intense. Yeah, it was nuts. I mean, I would really like actually like to know how you train something like a lynx to chase a cat like that, but not. <laughs> try and kill it you know like i don't know i i'm so curious just how that's communicated i'm sure it could be may, i mean well maybe i guess i'm not sure <laughs> but like yeah i wonder I, I really do wonder how that was done well you know you know marsh sort of brought it up even i think before we began to record which is that you know when you really sort of sit there and look at it like there 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 isn't a a, a massive plethora of you know diverse animal films upon which to draw from. Like usually no. there's like just a few that people throughout, you know, cinema history have kind of been like, oh, this one's really good. Or the ones that we remember are the hits or this, that, and the other. But like, I mean, that's gotta be a huge part of it. It's very complicated to to, mm -hmm. to get animals to do what you want. And then even when they've been trained to then get them to to pull that stuff off in a situation of stress or when there's lots of crew around and hustle and bustle going on in environments like, like a film set. So yeah, I, I can't even, I can't even imagine, you know, hell I can't, get our family dog to fucking sit. Yeah, just the diversity of the different animals on screen with each other doing things under some semblance of control in The Incredible Journey was incredible. I just I couldn't believe it. Because you could get a chimp to do just about anything you needed to, as proven by MVP and <laughs> other like, monkey see. movies. Yeah. yeah, but um, to get, like, yeah, just a lynx to, to do what you want it to do, I mean... It, it takes Disney money to do that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and uh, eventually the animals reunite in the wilderness. They continue on their journey of ups and downs and treacherous things. They run into a, a porcupine, uh, which sticks the retriever oh, yeah. uh, in the face. Another just awful sequence uh, of, again, just, yeah, the power of cutting, you know, and just simple effect, like makeup effects on this dog, you know. And then that's just like a whole thing, of course, they have to deal with. And they're taken in by another kindly man that they meet out in the wilderness who spots the uh, retriever. The retriever, like, picks up a bird that he shot down uh, and brings it over to him. And he's a hunter who appreciates a good dog. Yeah, a well-trained dog. Yeah. And so he notices what's wrong. And yes, yeah, similar to the cat sort of plot divergence, the dogs now get taken in. And the cat's just chilling outside the whole time, hiding in the shadows, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Some yeah. really funny day-for-night sequences around this part of the film, too. Just like some beautiful blue skies with a man like carrying a lantern <laughs> <as he's> outside. <laughs> very, very funny. With a very pronounced shadow, you know, yeah, from the, yeah. the midday sun. <laughs> right, and so yeah, you know, ultimately it all converges, right, uh, where 
the we cut back to the humans and the movie gets worse as Long Ridge is just <laughs> like, what happened to my animals? And he sort of puts out an APB, which is a very funny like telephone sequence where he's like trying getting the word out. And there's a great bit where he calls this paper and he's like, you know, we need to find my animals. And they're like, yeah, the reporter's covering a plowing contest. Uh, do you want to like leave a message or or whatever? It's yeah, this really yeah. like small town. It's funny like, that both films have groups of humans playing phone tag, trying to track down uh, missing animals. I didn't like make that connection until just now. Absolutely, and yeah, so like. Uh, this guy, you know, Mackenzie, the hunter, is like holding the dogs, being like, I'll just hold them until uh, till we can figure out what's going on. Like, these are someone's dogs. And all the meanwhile, the cat unlocks the, the cage that they're in and they set on home once again in uh, leading towards like the climax, which is kind of funny, too. Did you guys get the sense that like, kind of curious decision to like introduce the animals approaching the mountains and this kind of like harsh winter landscape. And then it cuts back to the humans and then the animals just show up at the end and the film just completely avoids like the most treacherous part of their journey that was like set up in the narrative. Yeah. I couldn't tell if maybe, I mean, it was probably logistically so complicated yeah. to with all those animals <laughs> up in the mountains, but it also seemed like the motivating factor was just to cast any sort of doubt at all that maybe they won't make right. it. Uh, Cause it's clear that they could surmount almost any obstacle. I mean, they could fight down a goddamn bear uh, trying to protect her cub. Mm-hmm. stage a prison break and you know exactly. yeah they've yeah, done a so lot i did really think like I, I i did really think for a minute that you know I, I forgot that i was watching like a disney movie and i thought for a second i was going to watch like each of these animals like expire and like that was going to be like one at a time you know they were going to be sort of like succumbing <laughs> to the uh, the harsh conditions and i was going to watch a very like different kind of film i really thought we were gonna watch them one by one like freeze to death and that was gonna be like the tragic end to this like incredible journey but i mean it seems like that the main source of tension in those final moments like it almost becomes like well you know they're gonna make it but is the old one with the bad bones gonna make it because that's sort of how it's all arranged you get like this birthday party for the young peter who like loved the bull terrier so dearly um and that's what he's like he's a completely brokenhearted about it and it's like at his birthday party where he has this crazy line where he just says i feel old (laughs) 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 this like kid who's just like grieving his lost bull terrier yeah, so, you know, just they do start to arrive. They start appearing from the mountains. You hear the barking in the distance after this kid has already been promised for his birthday, like a new bull terrier that kind of looks like his old one. It's like, I picked one that really looked like Bodger. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, so as the retriever comes out of the mountain, you know, the girl is, th- the family's thrilled. The father's like, ah, my, my treasured retriever. Like, what what luck and joy in my life. And then the, the cat comes out of the mountains and the little girl naturally, the girl loves her cat and she's thrilled you know and then peter kind of like sulks and makes his way down the stairs hands in his pockets you know looking at everyone having like such a lovely reunion with the animals and he sort of feigns happiness and he's like well i just sort of assumed that my old dog would uh, kind of freeze to death up there <laughs> too bad he didn't make it but even then bodger does come home oh yeah oh yeah no! 
miraculous as it seemed, it was Bodger, coming as fast as he could. felt for though yeah i i really felt for long ridge because when the film opens you know and it's it's establishing everything it's like pointed out that he's a bachelor that's right that he lives alone and how yeah. wonderful his life has been to have these animals in his home you know because his friends they've got kids and uh, you know a whole family a wife two you know children one very goth son but you know a nice looking family <laughs> and and he's like He's totally alone. And so even in this moment, this like triumphant return, I couldn't help but feel this little like tinge of grief for Longridge because he's got to celebrate the return of these animals and watch them like all get scooped up into the arms of the actual owners, you know, mm -hmm. and go, ah, great. What a, what an incredible journey they went on. And now I'm going to go home alone, a bachelor out here in the Canadian wilderness <laughs> by myself. You know, I felt for him. I really did. I did too. Yeah. Fair play. Yeah. You know, you know, I mean, for, for very personal reasons, I found the most emotional part of the film to be, when the daughter is just like, you know, before they know what happens to the animals, they are very like matter of fact about being like, these animals are dead. Like <laughs> yeah. there's no way. Uh, and then in that moment, the daughter is just very firm and being like, no, the cat is coming back. Peter's over there crying into his birthday cake. <laughs> and the daughter is just like, Teo, Teo will be back. Yes. You know? She's like so resolute. Like everyone in the family yeah. is like, they're, they're all dead. They're all dead. Give it up, kids, you know? Yeah. Uh, but no, she, she knew the cat was coming back. The Siamese, all day. The ending of the film has a bit of narration, and it reminded me of, of some something. And the narration is... And so it was. Three devoted friends came marching home. Together as always. Ah, oh, you old softy, you old so-and-so. <laughs> no, but you know what? You, you bring up a good point. It's also a film, as you sort of mentioned at the beginning, Marsh, Marsh about, about comradeship. And you look at those moments in this film, and you really do like have to reflect upon, like, would I do that? What, what, would I stick it up for my friend? You know, Would I break him out of jail if he was <laughs> you know, in some prison somewhere in Mexico? Like, yeah, and I think we all could learn a few things from these animals, really, we could. Yeah, and you know, interesting fact I discovered about this film is that two days after it was released, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. <laughs> <laughs> wow um, nature's cruel man <laughs> well I you know similarly enough uh, with this film predating the Kennedy assassination by a few days MVP 2 Most Vertical Primate came out a few weeks after the attacks on the World Trade Center in 2001 so another like sort of mirroring of tragedies national tragedies um <laughs> <laughs> Edward R. Murrow over here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? But yeah, I guess, I mean, yeah, where to even begin with most vertical primate? I guess, I mean, we could begin with what it, it gives us, which is, you know, our, our introduction to these apes and their families uh, and, their, and their just lifestyle in general. You know, it's established that they live on this 
lovely forest preserve, you know, seemingly, I don't know how far, but it is in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and they all kind of like hang out. It's like this animal collective, you know, again, I don't know if this location was established in the first MVP. I, I, I felt no compulsion to check, uh, but the film seems to suggest that like they've had a, a moderate success uh, for whatever it is they do, you know, specifically Jack as uh, like a hockey player to the point where he could afford his own home. And he I has, don't like, a lovely think home. he af- owns that home, Ryan. <laughs> you think it's he a, wasn't getting paid? It's like a controlled habitat. There's a woman yeah, there like, who's a scientist yeah. who's like their Hold on, handler, this is a good question. Trying to do a little, them. like, you know, broke-ass Jane Goodall Of course. Of, yeah. yeah, I guess maybe maybe he doesn't own the land, but, I mean, he has to have been getting paid as a hockey player, well, right? Well, look, you raise a very important thing that is never addressed. I wrote down and underlined at the top of my notes who is paying this chimp and how much, and Absolutely. that is never addressed in terms of, like, the labor that he does for the hockey team. Where are those checks going? Yeah. It's not... Said you got to think that the players' union would have even taken an issue with that. Yeah, you know? the, the idea PA. of somebody coming in and and becoming yeah. a, a star in the ZHL uh, and and working for free. Oh my goodness! I think the players' union would have had a field day with that if they even had a union. I mean, it is the ZHL, so we can't yeah. tell. This could be like the non yeah the non union uh, yeah. hockey league. But but I would I would Ryan to 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 your to your point. You know, you're just uh-huh. your your sort of confusion over the the sort of introduction here to the living situation. <laughs> I'm going to have to say, you know, at first, when you brought this film to the table, MVP2, Most Vertical Primate, you know, you brought a sequel, and and none of us had ever heard of this movie, nor had any of us, of course, heard of the first film, let alone discover that it's part of a trilogy. I, my initial thought was, you bastard. Like, I'm going to be so <laughs> lost. I don't, I, I haven't seen MVP. How am I going to know what the hell's going on in MVP too? But then within the first five minutes, when I saw a bunch of monkeys in uh, human clothing sitting around and watching television and like hanging out, I immediately thought, I don't need to see MVP. I don't need to know what's going on. I don't give a shit what's going on. Like, let's get on with this. All right. Get him on a skateboard. Get him on some skates. Like, let's just go. All right. So I didn't care. (laughs) I don't need to know what that setup is. I am, though, with Marsh on the real question. Because I find, like, the real dastardly, you know, sort of human elements of this film to be the exploitation of... This Simeon's labor, you know, and we'll get to that. But really, as far as this opening is concerned, like <laughs> I do, I do like the set dressing. I like that he has like framed photos of his family, like on his dresser and on the wall in his living room. Yeah, and he's got a huge ass, uh, you know, bag of popcorn. Uh, as, Big ass. As Jack's just chilling, and he's watching the ZHL draft. Uh, and he's hearing about the yeah the Seattle Simeons who are a new team and they're drafting players and he's watching it on the television and it introduces the viewers in a very chaotic way to the teammates we're about to meet as it's revealed on television that Jack has been drafted into the ZHL he is going to Seattle yeah typical expansion team woes if you really think about it you know they got all these like you know they have some sort of 
uh, a, a sort of motley crew that we get introduced. There, there's the there's like the punk goalie, right? He's like a punk yeah. rocker. He's got a nose ring and you know a, a mohawk and colored hair, and and we get established too to their sort of like fan bases, you know, that like the the Seattle like punk and grunge crowd really like the goalie, and then there's you know like the pretty boy. A uh, hot shot player who's just sort of this, you know, handsome guy that that you know yeah. will will get very close to Jack through the course of things. But then we're also introduced to the Swede. There's this like very Swedish character, you know. It's basically big guy. Big guy. Yeah. What was his name? It was like Schnecktedy or something. It was some, some Olav Chicken Dance. <laughs> chicken Dance. Yeah. Olav Chicken Dance. You know. And right away, I was like. The, the humans are more cartoonish caricatures than Jack the Simeon, the ape is, you know. He is eating hot dogs on the ice in the <laughs> yeah. middle of games. He just has a hot dog. Yeah, the Swede's got a yeah. hot dog in his mouth. Yeah, comparatively, Jack's underplaying it. Oh, my God. Yeah, this team is full of characters. And, of course, the last uh, but not least, Tyson Fowler, the figure skater world champion who has quit the game to join another game, the game of hockey. Uh, and he is doing all kinds of tricks out there. So yeah, they are sort of like uh, accidental Harlem Globetrotters kind of situation. Yeah, it is kind of like, you know, Bill Vec mindset. Oh, you yeah. know, like we got to get, we got to make this like a circus. We got to make this place a freak show. Yeah, the shady owner like really leans into it. You know, he gets that idea like, man, you know, we're going to, yeah, we're going to create this 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 weird ass show on ice and and it's all going to be centered around Jack the the mm-hmm. hockey playing ape. Yeah, I wish that owner Mr. Fulton was played by Jeff Garland. I think that would have given uh that role a bit more um personality, I think for sure. But yeah, so Jack is drafted and on his first game he's essentially benched for the majority of it because his team like just does not trust it they think it's a farce he's like i'm you, yeah i'm not going to be on the team if that monkey's on the ice but as a last ditch effort you know when the, when things aren't going very well the, the the owner does force them to get jack on the ice and boy does jack perform and i was thinking about how <laughs> you know if you're going to if you're going to take <laughs> if you're going to take the time to like train a monkey how to ice skate for a movie it's like of course like you not only do you have to make like a second one and even if you're introducing a new sport like it's obligatory that we get him ice skating on screen again because i just imagine that that was like a bit of an undertaking yeah and i i have to really emphasize for the listeners who have not seen this you really are watching a monkey ice skate like they're not that was the biggest pleasant surprise yeah i was really expecting like just to laugh and watch like every time it's a man in a suit you know i was like uh, like oh we'll just see how they cut this but i'm sure it's like a little kid dressed up as a monkey um but no it's a monkey i same for the skateboarding it's a monkey ice skating and skateboarding throughout the entire film yeah and i think uh, you know to point out i guess uh, an obvious shortcoming of this film which is a, a lower budget i mean this is an exploitation film uh, as far as I'm concerned. And it really leans on editing much more than, you know, the incredible journey. And for obvious reasons, I mean, this is a a chimp playing hockey. And it was really funny to me that like, yeah, the first time Jack gets the puck, he just gets like a very casual assist. And I'm like, oh, interesting. They're like underplaying it. They're not like, oh, he's, 
immediately just scoring. Yeah. You know, they actually do kind of like build up to it in a in an interesting yeah. way. You he's, know? he's he's like he's like an ice general. You know, he's he's distributing as well. Yeah. he's not he's just more, hot dog. Yeah, it. he's more of like a Steve Nash type because again, this team's full of just like alphas doing weird shit, like eating hot dogs uh, and doing double axles or whatever. And then yeah, we're sort of like treated to uh, an extended sort of montage of the team after of course Jack's amazing demonstration you know some of the team softens up although there's the conflict with Rob the sort of like hot shot new young player who you know his scenes are <laughs> oh, yeah. I know where you're going with this Come on. it's been on my mind all day that scene was so funny it was like legitimately funny when he's depressed you know at this point Jack is just like a, a celebrity you know the town is the town Seattle they're going nuts people are losing their minds the people in the audience they all got bananas in their hands and cheering for Jack you know like Rob feels like he's um he's sort of like outside of the spotlight and he's grim and he's down and he's depressed and instead of pounding whiskey he's at like a diner pounding chocolate milkshakes he's got like five empty glasses of chocolate milkshakes and he's like get me another chocolate oh yeah make it a double and it's all because he's like <laughs> racist against monkeys it's i mean true. like it, it's honestly yeah. like it plays like you know call back to to last week it's like a scene from far from heaven you know where uh he's like excuse me guys out of my way hey boy did you leave that ice early tonight because of jack well, let me ask you would you play with a monkey? Um, and that leads to one of my favorite moments in the film, which often do involve Rob having revelations about what's going on. <laughs> uh, and there's a bit like after they go on this 15 game winning streak, Rob sees in Jack's locker that there is a photograph of Jack and Louie, his younger brother, who's introduced in the opening uh, as being this sort of like, yeah, young, dopey, like, wannabe Jack younger brother character and and Rob sees Jack coming out of the showers <laughs> <laughs> and he's like tri tripping wet <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. and, and Rob says uh, I never thought about a chimp <laughs> I never thought of <laughs> I, I, I wrote the same line down yeah let me see if I can help you out of your marsh yeah Rob says, <laughs> I guess I never thought about a chimp with a family before. <laughs> and I was confused. I didn't realize that Louie was his brother. I like thought maybe Louie was his son. Oh, so did cause... I. Because then, yeah, Rob's sort of like, oh, my family's in L.A. I wish I get traded back. Yeah, he has a very one-sided conversation with a, with an ape that can't talk back to him. They 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 uh, they relate to one another about families and loneliness and life on the road as a professional athlete. You know. Yeah, I love when they're like sharing milkshakes together. Um, I, it's like one of the, the the film is like full of great costumes for Jack, and I particularly love his like leather jacket like at the diner and his jeans look i think it like suits him very well yeah mm -hmm. um I, I will say one thing though when i was watching like the hockey sequences you know and they were showing you know of course at first i was sort of like oh my god that he's fucking ice skating like that's no joke uh, but then i was also sort of thinking like man you know i've seen a lot of hockey uh 
I would have destroyed that thing. Are you kidding me? I would have put that thing into the boards. No questions asked. That monkey would have been ass on the ice, you know? And, and, you know, I guess, you know, credit to him. He's a little bit more wily, but I was just like, man, how are they not just plowing? Well, you know, I mean, it, it enrages their rivals, the carjackers, which is a great name for a hockey team. Mm And the carjackers are just livid at the fact of, of Jack's existence and his success on the ice, right? And so they frame him, uh, as Ryan mentioned in the opening, and Jack is cast out of this hockey scenario. So his most valuable primate days are over uh, as he takes to the streets or the really the single alley that they use repeatedly throughout the rest of the movie. (laughs) And I do, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the scrappy work on display here. This is a film that uses and reuses some of the same shots multiple times throughout a lot of establishing shots. There's one of Seattle. There's one of the stadium audience that are just literally repeated. Mm-hmm. There's also reaction shots of Jack celebrating after goals on the ice, which was all clearly just shot and shot at the same time. And like, it's just the same shot yep. or take cut across mo- weeks and months of mm-hmm. hockey play. Yeah, they show you that Seattle skyline every time you start to do- doubt and think like, <laughs> is this Vancouver? Could this potentially be Vancouver? And they're like, no, 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 no. Here, here's that the same wide shot again. Yeah, they give you the classic Frasier, you know, Space Needle skyline shot. Yeah. And they really like, you know, in look, it's a, obviously a very low budget film and it's difficult to make a movie with an animal. So, yeah. It's the, the locations are like repeated and they're very limited, obviously, which, yeah. So like the alley gets a lot of play at first as Jack is wandering around at night uh, as the team is like looking for him. He's just like hanging out on like roofs, like staring at the skyline, just like looking <laughs> glum and down, eventually sleeps in a dumpster. <laughs> It's a real dark night of the soul moment. He gets, yeah, he gets picked up, uh, you know, by the garbage uh, <laughs> in the morning. Yeah, tough times for for Jack, uh, but of course he finds solace in someone also down on their luck. Now this is when the movie got interesting for me because this is really the moment when I noticed that this film is just like Gus Van Sant's Paranoid Park. But this film was, in fact, six years before Gus Van Zandt's Paranoid Park. So, look, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Yeah. Maybe Paranoid Park was a response <laughs> film to them doing Seattle dirty by just yeah. like pr- gussying up Vancouver. Maybe this was the this film is the reason we have Paranoid Park. It's true, and so then the film right becomes about you know uh, alienated youth skateboarding in the Pacific Northwest as this orphaned kid is just hustling on the streets. He's posting flyers uh, by some just really shady guy is like paying him under the table to post flyers around town yeah, for various events. Yeah, who's like a sort of like character right out of Dickens. Yeah, he's, he's just got this, like soot on his face. He does. He's got like a really like threadbare coat and a scarf. And yeah, he looks like <laughs> this sort of Dickensian like child monger, you know? <laughs> so he's got like a British accent too. Yeah, he's like a cockney printer in, in Seattle. 
Yeah, yeah. that's so strange. Got some more flyers for you. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, and that's how, of course, Ben meets Jack, uh, especially because he's posting Jack's face all around town as there's like a reward out on him, this cherished mm-hmm. hockey player who was run out of the league by a, a false flag, faked incident. And yeah, but really he's just like vibing in the night and like really just thinking about what he left behind uh, and what he has in front of them. And I would also point out again, Marsh, since you brought up the sort of like threadbare qualities and uh, again, this idea of exploitation and, and you know, what really was Jack worth to this shady owner and his team? I don't know if you noticed, but the reward was only $5,000, you know? Not that Mm -hmm. much if you think about it in the grand scheme of things for a big ZHL franchise, you know? Shows you how much they really valued this guy. Only five grand, that's it. And that's probably well, I mean, it's supposed to be American, but I was also thinking it's five grand Canadian, which is, you know, even less. I also think what's one thing that's interesting also is that, like, in this sort of, like, hustling around posting bills sequence, we meet a cop who it's implied is in the first MVP. Yeah. A very uncanny, again, moment for someone who went in totally cold without any idea because I was like... <laughs> yeah. Man, he is really like interjecting himself into this uh, into this situation in a way that like felt at, at first before I understood as you watch the film and then you discover why he cared so much. I was like, man, this guy is really like he's obsessed, you know, and I, I read him as like a dirty cop and like that he had these like this nasty motive for like why he wanted to track down this monkey, you know, but but of course as you pointed out when you finally watch the film and you discover, like, oh, yes, okay, you know, he, he cares about Jack. Yeah. He likes He's just Jack. A, like a Jack lover, you know, yeah. from around town, <laughs> around the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I saw him, though, as a very, like, antagonistic force. You know, and maybe he's supposed to seem like that. But. It's it's hard to say. I mean, that's certainly how Ben feels about the police officer. You know, so we do we do when so we're you know hanging out with Ben and getting an idea of his daily routine as he's like hustling on the streets, putting up these flyers. The cop is like accusing him of truancy. He's like, "Why aren't you in school? What's going on here?" And he's like, "Oh, I just moved here from Alaska with my mom, and I start school next week." And then later follows that up with like a discussion of homeschool when he's accused again of like, "Why isn't he in school?" But Ben does have like a pretty sweet setup at this abandoned pool in this like lifeguard shack for a kid just living on the streets. Dude, he's um, living the life. Dude, yeah, that was an issue that I it was an issue that I had with the film, to be honest with you, because I felt that this movie, you know, if it did anything irresponsibly, it sort of uh, promoted or glorified the idea of homelessness. Uh, because, like you said, He's got a sweet setup, you know, and it was to me almost like this sort of like childlike fantasy of being homeless of this idea of like, you mean I got no responsibilities and I get to skateboard all day? No parents, no rules. Yeah, and then I get to sit around and drink blue Gatorade with my monkey friend. (laughs) Like, it was like, God damn it, you know? like Yeah, I I agree. Yeah, and I mean, because it is so comfortable. uh, Yeah, this little clubhouse is so, like, what a nice little setup. I was like, the only thing this thing is missing is an Xbox. Yeah, or a shower. It didn't seem like he was bathing. Well, at that point, you know, like showers suck. They're for adults and people with jobs, (laughs) man. Like, come on. I want to talk a little bit more about 
the Richard Karn character who's introduced uh, around this time as well as the skate shop owner. And I loved the first time he appears. He comes outside, you know, he's talking to this woman who's looking for Ben, and he is so sunburned. He's got <laughs> he's got the sunglasses tan line. And you're like, there's a guy just He just came back from spending some home improvement money, you know, like he's on yep, vacation yep. or something, you know? Yeah, just unbelievable. And uh yeah, the fact like it's just it it clearly just doesn't work for me, him as a skate shop owner. Like he's just so fucking square. Yeah. That it's such just like you know, look, they're just trying to get a name in this movie. But it's, yeah, frankly, it's preposterous. Yeah, and I also loved the fact I, I kept laughing. And I, I don't think this was an intentional joke on their part, but his name was Oliver Plant. <laughs> his I, name I think was, it was a joke. <laughs> okay, well, if it was a joke, I Maybe. kept thinking that it was like a play on Oliver Platt. And like, because he at a certain point goes like, oh, it's Oliver Plant. And I was like, I kept being like, man, I would have been like Oliver Platt. Like, I love that guy. What a great actor, you know? But yeah, his name is Oliver Plant. And everyone calls him Ollie, so he's Ollie Plant. But yeah, we do get to you know see his skate shop, um, and then like two other local kids who are going to participate in this like upcoming Seattle skate championship. You know, they're getting their new board, and that one kid is like sponsored, and he has like an expense account, which is like a really nice de- again in the Dickensian detail. As yeah. poor little Ben is like staring at these like yeah rich kids, where it's like yeah, take whatever board you need, put it on your account. Yeah. And he's got like his his probably barely used board, and he's like, just throw it away, burn it, whatever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's of course when Ali says, like, yeah, he picks up on Ben, and he picks up on the class dynamics, and he says, well, I'll make sure to put this used board in the dumpster since you're done with it. Right. Yeah. He maybe spells it out for him, but it's interesting that Ben doesn't immediately take that board for himself. He still sticks with his board until he feels the need to give back to Jack, his monkey friend, who is intrigued by the process of skateboarding, and he doesn't go dumpster diving until he needs to get a board for for Jack, which he does. And then um, the two of them just sort of like tear it up and shred. And so it, it is funny when Jack is first introduced to the board because his eyes they do light up for he does look kind of like a glassy expression for so much of the film but once he sees that skateboard he gets like really pumped up and he can't wait to try it out and man just that that first sequence when he really does commit to skateboarding he does like learn a little bit and he's like does like some some light skateboarding he like goes down a um just like a plank just to kind of just to make sure he doesn't fall off the board you know those are his initial like testing it out but soon enough he you know he hits the pool for his own um and that extended sequence of generic uh you know royalty free skate punk music that plays <laughs> as as he's like shredding in that pool god it's just so funny and it like it looks great too like it's just it's hysterical and i don't know if you guys noticed that did you like notice the shoes when he's on the board 
I noticed. Yeah, it's it, to describe to the listeners, it's this amusing thing. So throughout the film, he is wearing sneakers, and he's got like these cute little shoes on. He's got like on. on. He's got like skate shoes on. Mm-hmm. But in order to pull it off on the board, the only way he could clearly keep his balance was if he was barefoot and was able to like grip on the board. So what they do is they t- <laughs> they like take the shoes and clearly have cut them in a way so it's just the tops of the shoes, and they sort of like strap them on top of his feet. So it looks like he's wearing shoes, but if you look closely, you see his giant chimpanzee toes like sticking out from below the shoes so he could grip onto the board. Yeah, honestly, it was one of, again, the moments in this film that like was truly uncanny for me, where like I was like looking and then I had to look closer and then I had to look closelier because I was like, what the hell is happening? (laughs) Why do I feel so unsettled by this? And, you know, it was those shoes. And then realizing, like, it's his bare feet. They got the soles off. Yeah, it's got his I was like, what is going on here? Like, to say nothing of the fact that, again, I'm watching a freaking ape skateboarding and skateboarding better than I could ever hope to skate in my life, mm-hmm. you know? The first time I got on a skateboard, it shot out from underneath me. I fell down, knocked the wind out of myself, and, like, I never had the stones to get back on it. So to then see this... <laughs> This monkey okay? just shredding down an alley in Vancouver. <laughs> I was like, he skate. Like he's actually skate. Yeah, I love I love the extended pool jam when he's sort of alone and just starts shredding for the first time. And they keep, you know, like I kept being amazed. It's like uh, again, sort of like reusing not the same footage but the same shot where Jack drops in and then rides the length of the pool. And they kept cutting to that shot like four times in the sequence. <laughs> where, you know, again in this like. Bazinian realism sense it's like one of those moments that shows off this is the animal doing a thing in real time Mm -hmm. in real space in the frame this thing just dropped in and rode across the entire length of a pool right that's much more impressive than any cutting ever could be right and seeing like yes the the marvelous creature or whatever you know that's a good point because I, I guess one of my complaints about the film is it never lives up to its just wonderful poster uh you never do get to see jack do a grab trick that's what i kept waiting for i wanted to see him do like a grab trick in the air he his feet are always like comfortably on the board itself i don't think he grinds either well they're more you know they're vert skaters they're not yeah yeah but there is that Bazinian realism there. They they're not going to try and convince you he's doing any tricks that he's he's isn't capable of. He is truly skateboarding on screen. Well, that's like funny too cuz when the competition started and the one kid was going and he was killing killing it, I'm like this kid's like way better than the, than Jack and the other kid, you know? Yeah, like I guess just to fast forward, we could you know talk about this like skate competition, you know, when Everyone's participating and like really doing quite a good job and are like quite impressive on the board. All these kids, you know, Ben does get a shot at participating in the skate challenge when Ollie of the store decides to like sponsor him. You know, he says, okay, like, you know, he, he knows Ben's situation. He knows his, his mother has passed and then he's, you know, might be going back to foster care. So 
Ollie decides to like house him for a little bit, you know, kind of take care Put of him. Put him in the loft. Him, him and Jack, by the way. Like him he takes and Jack. That's him. true. He, yeah, he's he's very he's very fatherly and uh, and very hospitable to both of them. He lets him use like a brand new board and really sort of prove himself. And he does sign him up for the competition. Initially, they ask like, "Are you his guardian?" And he says no. And Ben kind of sulks and walks away, thinking he won't be able to participate. But then it's revealed, no, I was able to sign you up. I've got it all taken care of. And Ben does participate in this skating challenge. When he does finally get up there at the end, he does panic. And then who comes to the rescue? Jack. He climbs up and he says, you know, he doesn't say Jack never speaks, but he, with his loving eyes, he says, like, I will ride with you, Ben. Yeah. We'll do this together. And I guess I was wondering, I didn't think his run was that impressive. I guess the the, the fact that he was riding with a monkey is what sold the judges uh, and, like, convinced them of his worth because Ben does win the con. In fact, you know, the, the announcement of the winners is really peculiar you know so we should we should mention we do get a cameo from uh, skateboarding celebrity guest bob burnquist he must have been blazed dude he was just he couldn't see past the monkey yeah he has the, like a ridiculously large smile on his face the whole time and he's just kind of yeah. like let's do this man <laughs> like <laughs> i mean yeah he was in like a totally different plane of existence and uh, when he was participating in mvp but yeah he very like in a very monotone announces all of the, the three winners and the kid who comes in second place is the kid who like wiped out uh, in yeah. in his run, the two people that do come in second and third are those two children that we referred to that were originally in Ollie's store. You know, it's a bit of a small world, this like <laughs> gang of Seattle skateboarders. But yeah, Ben comes out on top, which is like I I thought it was kind of shocking. I mean, the film never convinced me that Ben was that remarkable of a skateboarder. It certainly convinced me that Jack was. Um, a hell of a skateboarder. Um, I guess it's like all relative. You it's know? very clear that like the judge's score was for Jack and not for Ben, you know, because even when they cut to like the, the, the crowd sort of reporter or whatever covering this, you know, rinky dink skating event that's taking place in like an air hangar, airplane hangar or something. Right. She's just like, what an amazing doubles routine. Like she's even being like, <laughs> there's a monkey on a skateboard, you know, like that just like, that just captured the fancy of everyone in there, you know? Yeah. I mean, and you're looking at Jack the whole time more than you're looking at Ben, you know, you, you keep going like, there's a fucking monkey in a half pipe. What I still is going feel like it here? is kind of de de-emphasized though, like to what Ryan was getting at is that it, like, it doesn't really deliver on its promise. Cause it kind of like, all right, yeah, he's going, you know, he's going up and down on the vert, and then it's showing Ben, and then they shamefully uh, double him in the background at a certain point. When they're doing the doubles, you can see it's like a little human. Uh, <laughs> uh, whomever, it's in the deep, you know, the deep sort of background, and kind of a shameful display. There's no grab, there's really no air either, but obviously that's no. incredibly difficult. So then, after Ben wins, he gets sponsored and like a $2,000 giant check. Yeah, big old. Big old $2,000 check. Buy a lot of blue Gatorade with that, you know? <laughs> and then, yes, the cop has reappeared, you know? Our dogged 
police officer and he he approaches you know Jack and it, it seems that the jig is up you know this this simian that's been on the loose is going to be dragged off to monkey prison or whatever but no he knows who Jack is and it turns out this cop is a beloved Simeon's fan. He's a big Simeon supporter and, of course, a big fan of Jack. And he says, you know, we've been looking everywhere for you. The the playoffs start today. We got to get you to the rink. Like, the team needs you. And then this cop scoops up Jack and brings him to the arena where all the forlorn Simeon players are sitting there with their heads hung down thinking, how the hell are we, a bunch of professional hockey players, going to be able to beat the carjackers without our ape friend, our our ape winger or whatever? Yeah, so at first there's a mix-up with the team (laughs) because Louie... Jack's brother heads out of his habitat to find his brother when he learns he's missing. He hitchhikes with an old man that looks kind of like John Carpenter, but yeah. uh, in this kind of like, yeah, uncanny, like trucker hillbilly guy. Yeah, he's like an old prospector. <laughs> he's like, well, pal, why don't you jump in the RV? You going to Seattle? Yeah, he's like, I hate to see a little fella out in the rain. And I, I was actually really confused if what was your guys read on that did he know it was a monkey or did he assume it was like a little human well they make the joke that he can't see anything without his glasses so they make that joke but i didn't i of course like didn't read it that way i mean i really just read it as you know as something that's sort of taking place in this entire movie which is just that that people are seeing these monkeys as just as a, as a, as another part of just everyday functioning society. Like I kept thinking while I was watching this movie that like going back to this character Rob, you know, the hockey guy, who's just like as soon as they draft the Jack, he's just kind of like he's crushed by this. And I was just thinking to myself, man, if I saw that, you know, if I saw like a monkey out there with a bunch of professional hockey players scoring goals and and skateboarding, I would have been like wrecked. Like, I would just walk around with my head hung down, thinking, like, man, we really are, like, inferior. (laughs) Like, what is going on? I would have been just devastated by every single moment. Then this monkey hitchhiking in in the human clothing, getting in, and the guy's just kind of, like, hop in here. Like, again, like, everyone in this movie is not reacting. They're not reacting, like, with the kind of, like shock and awe that 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 i would seeing like suddenly just like a monkey skateboarding down an alley and that driving an rv on a highway (laughs) driving an rv like i mean i would be immediately thinking like planet of the apes territory like like this is it they're coming for us finally like they've evolved man like and everyone is just taking it like so matter-of-factly so whether or not it's the joke that he can't see still throughout the movie like people aren't going stop time out wait these are monkeys doing all this, folks. Like, what's happening? Like, With the exception of Rob initially until he learns that monkeys can have families, too, <laughs> yeah. and then everything aligns and becomes clear to him. Yeah, after he gets drunk on milkshakes or whatever. And there's a, the great bit that's repeated twice. This is also, like, my favorite Rob stuff where... Louis shows up into the, the locker room of the Simeons, and Rob goes, Jack? Little dude! Jack! Hey. Where you been? Uh, and then greets him as Jack, and everyone treats him as Jack, which becomes a problem when uh, it turns out he really doesn't know how to play hockey. He's no Jack. And so then it happens again, where, like, the team is losing. They're, like, playing in the championship against the carjackers, their rival. <laughs> and all of a sudden, 
Jack shows up after the second period. There's one period left to play. They're losing, and he walks into the locker room, and Rob looks up and goes, Jack? <laughs> after having done that like five minutes previous, which is it's incredible. Uh, and then he goes, oh, the pit and he grabs the picture and is like showing it to everyone like they're brothers. It's Louie. Come it on. It didn't occur to him before that, obviously. It's just so crazy. Those monkeys look so yeah, different. Yeah, they don't look really alike that no, much at all. At all. Yeah. And the film is so dedicated to like giving you like a good close look at Jack and Louie and just like getting to know them and love them. And the idea that Rob couldn't tell his buddy apart is just like shameful. I was also like loving the um, the like constant sort of like interjections of like the the sort of ESPN type show that they have talking yeah. about the the you know this event and the hockey and everything the the Bruce and Clark Hockey News Hour <laughs> the, Bruce, oh, <laughs> the yeah. most Canadian shit ever but like I was just like thinking too about these announcers like man if I'm calling this game you know and I'm like sort of watching this team get like creamed by the carjackers how I would I would have just like at a certain point on the broadcast said something like well folks <laughs> you know <laughs> can't help but think that uh, the fortunes of the simians might be a little bit different if they weren't throwing a monkey onto the middle of the ice who can't skate in a professional <laughs> hockey game against a bunch of professional fucking players. Like, yeah, they're all just like, something's wrong with Jack, and they can't really figure it out. <laughs> yeah, Robin, he's just rusty, you know? Like, he'll, he'll remember how to skate in a second. You know, thinking that if a human, you put him on the ice, and he's like dropping his stick and falling onto his ass they're gonna be like get him out of here but they're like just wait man he'll he'll pick it up in the second period you know? well they know he's the secret sauce that makes the team uh, team go yeah and of course and jack does show back up. and jack shows up he and does. he gets in and he scores and also to you know sort of address what you said earlier andy about how you would just take him out well, you know, the carjackers try and do that. <laughs> and this is in the championship game. Again, one of the guys is just like, I am going to wreck that thing. And he, he gets out on the ice. And Olav, the Swede with the hot dog in his mouth, saves him. Yeah. So you got to contend with that. That's you're true. coming for the king. That's true. I, I didn't account for the Swedish enforcer on the ice, you know, because I was thinking if I'm the coach, I go immediately to my enforcer, you know, and I go, just go throw down the gloves and beat the shit out of that ape, you know, take a hit, get in the box, you know, go sit in the box for a bit, just beat that monkey down, you know? But yes, of course, I forgot that they, they had, a, they had an enforcer of their own watching, you know, out of all the their things, best player. of all the things this movie doesn't address, it addresses that question. Like, well, what if you wanted to just kick his, kick his ass? <laughs> you know? I just I picture a guy sitting in the penalty box, you know, there's just a bloody monkey on the ice, and it's like, well, that was quick, like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but no, the Swedish enforcer had his back, yeah. you know? And, of course, the Simeons win the championship, and they cut to Jack once again doing the same celebration where he's <laughs> just sit, sitting on the ice. Yeah, with a dead look in his eyes, you know? <laughs> look, this movie to me, it, it was like... This utter fantasy where, like, 
Yeah, they win the fucking skate competition and then they're spirited away to win the fucking playoff game. And it was like, there's two, you talk about all the doubles, there's two excessive celebration scenes like immediately after each other and both of them heavily feature Richard Karn like going nuts in the audience, you know? And again, both times I was thinking, man, how depressed you would have been after this, you know? Like, think about the next day when you're sitting there and, like, how could you ever reach those heights again, you know? Like, that's just too much celebration in one day, you know? Winning the big skate competition, Jack winning on the ice, you know? Monkey's just, like, just running roughshod over everyone and you're just going nuts in the crowd. Like, you would have gone home the next day and you would have just, it would have been, like, coming off of a boat. Coke binge, you know, you would have just yeah, been like miserable. I, I imagine that, like, given a couple days, Richard Karn would have like eventually realized, like, I may have been a bit impulsive, um, <laughs> adopting the street boy. <laughs> Maybe I should give him back. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's that. Yeah, that's yeah that that is that. Well, okay, so Andy, this is this is what we brought to the table. I hope you had fun. What are you know? The, this was you know you you were the one who was really reflecting on these beautiful magnificent creatures um do you have a particular favorite magnificent creature in a film creature feature yeah well you know we did watch one earlier uh in our one of our previous podcasts where we watched orca the killer whale which i think is a a great feature of a a very majestic creature so of course i'm i'm gonna give a, a call back to that but you know in terms of one that we haven't discussed or seen uh, i think i might have even mentioned it to you both but i was a big fan when i was a kid of of the bear the movie the bear which uh you know um i i love bears i just think they're amazing and and that to me is again just this like really impressive and um you know visually also like really beautiful depiction of you know of a bear and its sort of experiences and and, and journeys and mm-hmm. stuff like that so well yeah i mean i did have a lot of fun uh with with this week um a lot of fun and uh i'm 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 like richard karn you know sort of feeling like i'm gonna be very depressed tomorrow coming down from this experience so the only way to get through that i think is to is to immediately turn the page and head to our next topic and i believe Ryan, you're up. So what do we got next week? So I thought I'd mix it up a little bit and try something different. And we've had a lot of broad topics and themes where there was just so much to to pull from, so many different works by so many different artists. So I thought, how about we focus on a single artist and we look at a director's work? And so the Criterion Channel put up a bunch of new or a bunch of films, new restorations by the filmmaker Doris Wishman, a filmmaker whose work I have never seen before. And I thought, you know, whenever I think of my my guys here on the gauntlet, I love coming for them for advice at different points in my life. So why don't you two take me on a date with Doris? Why don't you um, kind of guide me through and introduce her work to me as we all sort of become introduced to her work together? fabulous sounds great as always you can follow us on twitter at gauntlet movies or send us an email at gauntlet movie podcast at gmail.com thanks everyone
Thank you. 